Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Coming up. You took 45 years away from my mother, and I am asking you to come forward and give up the rest of your life so that we can have the closure that we deserve. For Vault Studios, I'm Will Johnson. You're listening to The Daily Crime. You lose your best friend for life. You have special moments <clears throat> throughout your life that, that you should be able to share with your mom and you, and you can't. You get married, you have children, you miss out on all of that. 45 years ago in November of 1976, Dottie Milliken was beaten to death outside of a laundromat in Lewiston, Maine. Her daughter is still looking for her mother's killer. I'm joined by reporter Chris Costa in a busy newsroom at New Center, Maine in Portland, Maine. This case, over four decades old, how did it come back up? How did it come to your attention? So here's, here's kind of how the, the timeline played out from my end as a reporter. Um, we knew the anniversary was coming up. We uh, did a little preview piece on the Friday before the anniversary, which was a Saturday. So we did this preview piece on November 5. The anniversary was on the 6th. And I was told over the weekend that after somebody had seen the story, that they'd reached out anonymously to Dottie Milliken's daughter and said, hey, I know you have a $10,000 reward already. I'd like to contribute another another 5000 in hopes of getting somebody to come forward. So that was pretty cool. Chris, let's go back to November 6th of 1976 and what we know about what happened to Dottie Milliken in the early morning hours. Dottie Milliken had, had remarried. Um, her daughter, Tanya, was staying with um, Dottie's sister. Uh, and Dottie was getting ready to come back from maternity leave on Monday. So that, uh, that night, I believe it was a Friday night, she had gone to do some laundry in the middle of the night, uh, you know, after 11 o'clock. Um, you know, police had said this was not uncommon for her to do because with three young kids, it was some of the only time that she got alone to herself. Um, so she went to a laundromat. She, she left her home uh, around 11 p.m. She said, uh, you know, goodbye to her, her then, I guess he was technically her second husband. She goes to the laundromat. And police have now narrowed down a window of time to between 2.30 in the morning and 4.30 in the morning that Dottie, at some point, was brutally beaten outside of that laundromat uh, to death. And they say that the newspaper boy found her at 4.40 a.m. that following morning. And Chris, you mentioned Tanya. Tanya Ross is Dottie Milliken's daughter. She was only seven years old at the time of her mother's murder, right? She was, you know, and that's something I talked to her about because a lot of times when I've covered these unsolved homicides, um, it, it tends to be parents looking for answers of what happened to their kids. Um, not often have I encountered cases of someone who was a young child at the time trying to figure out what happened to their parents. And you can imagine kind of the tumult that she's grown up with uh, not having a mom and and not really having a father figure uh, either. Chris, this street in Lewiston, Maine, where this happened, uh, fairly busy street back then and even today, although it was the middle of the night. 
police have suggested that someone could or might have seen something? I mean, let's put it this way. Lisbon Street in Lewiston connects to the major highway in our state, the main turnpike. And it runs throughout the city of Lewiston, which is one of the top five largest cities in our state. Um, I went to the scene, uh, you know, the, the sorry, the, the site of what was the scene in 1976. It's now, a, you know, a glass repair shop. Um, you know, I think it's two lanes in each direction. I don't know if it was that case in 1976, but the the street has apartments all over. Um, so, yes, you know, I can understand police thinking that at that time, especially as they mentioned, you know, back in 1976, there were a lot of like social clubs and bars on Lewiston, uh, sorry, on Lisbon Street in Lewiston. And that somebody coming or going down that very busy street must have seen or heard something, even though it was the middle of the night. Chris, were there any other leads, evidence that detectives were able to follow up on back then in 1976 or in the years to follow? Here's what they've been able to tell me. Um, they, they conducted, you, as you can imagine, with all those apartments around there, dozens of witness interviews. Um, now, the evidence collection style that they had in 1976, the state police tell me, is very different than what they would have done today, given the fact that nowadays they have more complete DNA evidence. And I think in 1976, it wasn't even available yet. So that's one thing that complicates this case is, you know, would they have collected the, the um, evidence a different way if they found blood, if they found hair or skin? Are there things that they could have um, saved from 1976 that would have helped them today? State police seem to indicate that at this point, despite what they do have for physical objects of evidence, they're not able to uh, they're not able to to run that through through DNA evidence at this point. You know, the one thing that they did tell me was that they know that Dottie was beaten to death with an object. So, you know, that was one of my questions to them was she was beaten to death. Was it was it with hands and feet or was it with an object? And they said, yes, it was an object. That's what they believe, because the markings on Dottie's body. And not only do they believe it's an object, they think it's a tool. Now, they've told me what type of specific tool they believe it to be, but um, they wanted to keep that off the record for now because, as you can imagine, these high-profile cold cases, when they get this attention, there are people who call in with tips. And some people you know, call in with information they've seen, read, heard, um, and it can end up complicating the case if the person is you know, just going off of something they've seen or heard on television or in the newspaper. Chris, you speak to a lieutenant with the Maine State Police. He has picked up at least some aspects of this investigation over the years. It speaks to the fact that this is such an old case that over time, multiple investigators have come along and have uh, have jumped back into trying to figure this one out. Yeah, it's true. Um, and, and I don't believe he's the primary uh, detective on the case anymore. There's a there's another detective who's now on it. Um, and, and in the years since this case, you know, obviously there's, there's been a lot of development on unsolved homicides in Maine. Uh, you know, they actually created a cold case unit and they, they, they prefer to call it unsolved homicide, but, you know, they've developed a unit of detectives, sergeants who can come in and support whoever the, 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 you know, initial detective is who's on the case. So this lieutenant that I spoke to did carry the case for a period of time. Um, and it was interesting to me because he told me that, you know, because he had, expertise in blood spatter. He actually used to work in the main state uh, crime lab. Um, you know, his, his expertise, his knowledge was valuable in looking into this case because 
especially when you're talking about a, a beating death, you can imagine there is a lot of blood spatter. Um, so it was interesting to kind of hear his perspective, you know, even though some of it was not to be published, you know, but he was telling me about kind of what his involvement was in the case because he had that unique experience. Somebody should have seen something, especially on a Friday night, and especially during 1976, Lisbon Street was a wild ride. There are a lot of, we have a lot of different theories about what had happened that night. There's not a shortage of information, there's a deluge of information. How does this case go unsolved after 45 years? Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. I was struck by the fact, and correct me if I'm wrong, that they have a handful of people who are still persons of interest in this case. Is that right? That is. They have about five people of interest um, that they they basically say at this point, despite the number of interviews and re-interviews, they haven't been able to clear them as as persons of interest. You know, people who had, I guess, um, potential opportunity to be involved in this case, and they, they, you know, obviously... You'd think uh, a person of interest would want to do whatever they can to clear themselves by providing as much information to police as possible. But yeah, at this point, they say they've narrowed down that list of persons of interest to about five. You know, again, this, these are those types of details that the state police try to um, keep in a little bit in generalities when speaking to the media because they don't, again, as we mentioned, they don't want people calling in with these red herring tips. Um, and the, the lieutenant told me that you know, they've had to investigate a lot of those types of tips that kind of led them nowhere, but it did allow them to cross things off their list that they knew, you know, hey, this does not line up with the timeline, etc. Um, they will not go into any detail about who they think those persons of interest are or who, the, who, who those persons of interest are as of right now. And I'd ask Tanya because she did her own investigation. We could talk more about that in a minute. Um, who she thinks is involved. She thinks she knows who the killer is which to me is remarkable, um, but she is hesitant to name that person publicly for legal reasons. What I learned is that, you know, she fought for her life till the very last minute, second. In my heart, I feel like I've solved it. It's a matter of getting the person that did this to come forward. I feel in my heart that it's somebody that she knew quite well. Yeah. So let's talk about Tanya and, and her her quest to find her mother's killer. And that's a really interesting, you know, fa- fascinating detail if she thinks she might have an idea of who, who did this. T- tell us more about your conversation with her. I, I, the first thing I noticed about Tanya is that she seems remarkably strong to be able to talk about the death of her mother and not just the death of her mother, but the murder of her mother. Um, I asked her how she was so strong. And she said, you know, you got to go through a lot of days of weakness to get to the point of being strong, which I found I found really interesting. Um, you know, she said she has struggled with this a lot. You know, as being a kid when it happened, you know, at age seven, she said, "I don't think a seven-year-old can really comprehend what it means for someone to be murdered." 
But she said that around age 20, she started to look into this case on her own because she said, I just had to know what happened. I had to know everything. Then she began to understand, okay, this is what happened to my mom. She conducted similar investigation to investigations to what the, the police had done. She interviewed hundreds of people. She said she saw all the papers, the paperwork, all the documents, all the statements. She even saw a lot of the photos. Um, and one thing that really just stuck out to me was as I, I said to her, I might imagine that some of those photos, you know, the, the beating death of your mother, that's, that's got to be hard to unsee. And she said it's imprinted in her mind. Um, that really, you know, struck a chord with me. Because uh, I can't imagine, you know, as a kid having to look at those pieces of information. Um, you know, but she's been committed to this because she wants to know what happened. And now to this point, she feels like she knows the person who's responsible. And she's just waiting for that person, you know, if it is that person, to come forward with, with the piece of information that either confirms they did it or clears them. And it was interesting to me because, you know, she said uh, at the end of our interview, uh, she kind of spoke directly to whomever that person might be that was responsible and said, you took 45 years away from my mother. You took 45 years away from me and my family. Now I'm asking you to give up the rest of your life since you're in your, you know, mid 60s, 70s. Uh, give up the rest of your life so that we can have some peace. Um, so it's been a it's been an emotional journey for Tanya, for sure. Chris, you mentioned police obviously looking for any information. The the number to call Maine State Police, 207-657-3030. Uh, we hope to stay in touch with you and bring us any information or, or new details on this as they come. Yeah, absolutely. I hope they do. I, you know, every time I, I have a, a, a pretty decent relationship with that lieutenant. We've worked together now on, on several unsolved homicides. He's where he's kind of updated me and kind of helped, helped me fill in some gaps. And one thing that gives me a little bit of hope is that every time I, I do one of these stories, I get a text from him the next day saying, hey, we've got a little, uh, a little flurry of tips after your story. So fingers crossed that uh, putting it out there, getting some exposure, putting it back in front of people's you know, eyes and ears after 45 years uh, will generate some new leads for them that they can try to trace down who's responsible for this. Chris Costa at News Center, Maine in Portland, Maine. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Will. Thanks for listening to The Daily Crime. We're here every weekday, Monday through Friday. Be sure to subscribe to the show and give us a great review if you like what you hear. And if you'd like to learn more about the show and Vault Studios, check out our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault. 